Thank you for joining us for another episode of Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Emily Primo, assistant editor of Fraud Magazine, and I'm joined by Annette Simmons-Brown. Annette is a senior paralegal at the Hennepin County Attorney's Office in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks for joining us, Annette. Well, thank you very much for having me. Great. So you are going to briefly cover two similar cases of bank fraud with us today. Can you start by telling us a little bit about each? The first was um, a a youngish lady named Angel Osborne. Actually, I'm fictionalizing the names of each of these defendants because I feel like it's more important to be educational rather than, you know, journalistic. But the lady I'll call Angel Osborne was a youngish high school graduate who started to work at a credit union um, fairly shortly after her high school years. And she started at an entry-level position and worked her way up through the ranks to operations manager and branch manager. And in at least a five-year period, she conducted over 550 transactions from her own credit union accounts that she had at this credit union that actually the credit union itself wound up paying for rather than her own accounts. She wrote checks from her account. She purchased items. She paid personal bills using the credit union's ACH system, and she also made electronic mortgage payments from the credit union's accounts electronically, and she also bought items and withdrew cash using her ATM debit card. The interesting thing about Angel was that she was in a position to manage what was called a suspense account, and when her own purchases were due to be presented to her account, she knew how to access her own account and prevent the posting of all of her charges directly to her account. These postings, these checks that she wrote, her ATM transactions, then because they could not post directly to her account, they went into a suspense account that she managed and they just kind of stayed there. And because she was not only responsible for the um, management of the suspense account on a day-to-day basis, she was also responsible for clearing the suspense account um, of items that had gotten too old. She would wind up on a regular basis clearing the suspended charges, and they were basically written off by the credit union as, as bad as, as you know, bad payments or payments that uh, the credit union was going to have to absorb. And in that manner, again, over about five years, she stole over $116,000. Wow. Yeah. And she was ultimately charged with one count of felony theft by swindle. Uh, she pleaded guilty to that, and she was sentenced to 120 days in the workhouse seven years of probation, and a pretty much like amount of over $116,000 in restitution. And so basically she conducted things, you know, the way normal people do and normal people embezzle funds. Normal embezzlers, they typically use instruments other than cash to conduct their theft. We go now to one Nicoletta Randazzo, who was an older woman. Uh, She, for about 11 years, was employed as a mid-level teller and then teller supervisor of a small community branch in Hennepin County Township. Some of her duties included the management of a branch's ATM machines, including and especially loading the cartridges with cash 
and reconciling the accounting of the cash withdrawals from the machine. And she also participated in the hiring of new tellers whom she would then supervise. Because Nicoletta routinely violated a requirement to have at least two employees handle the ATM maintenance at any given time, and instead handled it herself, she managed over the course of about eight years of uh, stealing literally bundles of cash in amounts ranging from 500 to $5,000 each physically out of the bank. And she would do this literally by filching a bundle while she was handling the ATM management alone, and she would hide them in the armpit of her blouse. She would typically wear oversized, you know, clothing, and she could hide these bundles on her person, or she would, I'm not making this up, I can't, <laughs> um, or she would just slip them into her purse and, and get, a, you know, get the bundles of cash out of the bank, and then she would manipulate the branch's accounting systems, both the written systems and the computerized systems for the machines and branch operations to cover up these growing cash shortages. She was responsible for hiring tellers, and she would routinely recommend hiring tellers who were very young, very inexperienced, and who might not catch problems with operations or, or differences in what should be and what what was in the uh, in the accounting, and they were also very. These younger people were also very easy to bully, so she kind of had that feel to herself. And again, over the course of uh, several years, she actually uh, stole over two hundred and fifty-nine thousand dollars. She was charged with uh, seven counts of theft, uh, felony theft by swindle, and one count of aggregated forgery for having put false statements on accounting records, and she pled guilty to all eight counts, was sentenced to one year in prison. That sentence was stayed, and she served out a probationary term. So it was interesting. Uh, Angel kind of spotted a crack in the operational systems that she could then take advantage of, whereas Nicoletta basically created the crack that she could, you know, manipulate and steal physical cash from the bank. And I found that to be very, very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And it seems like that that crack that they found on top of that, there weren't separation of duties. They both had way too much power in these banks. That is exactly right. Um, I think especially for Angel, that she would be able to monitor the day-to-day management of the suspense account, where which kind of became this black hole where all of her transactions went waiting in limbo to be posted and the postings never happened, and also to be responsible and, and capable of clearing the suspense account. I think that's what, that was the crack that she spotted and exploited over a number of years. And I think um, Nicoletta exploited the fact that this was a smaller, intimate community branch. We're not talking about, you know, a, a branch of Wells Fargo Bank in downtown Manhattan. We're just not. So she exploited, I think, kind of the human environment that was very collegial, very friendly, although she was the one bullying her subordinates, there was a, a more intimate uh, level of interaction with the, with the branch staff and its managers than you might find in a bigger area with a bigger bank. 
So how were you brought into these cases? As a paralegal with the Hennepin County Attorney's Office, I'm in its criminal division, and I'm assigned to a unit that handles complex financial crimes, and I'm its principal legal assistance support. And so I was brought into each of these cases after they had been reported to and investigated by their respective police authorities. And the police um, investigators for each of these cases actually investigated the cases fairly broadly and then submitted their cases to our office for a charging decision. Do you know how the authorities actually discovered these crimes or figured out that something was going on? Because it seems like these were both instances where they might have been hard to discover, especially since they happened over a period of time and they were able to steal so much money. Yes, and as often happens in embezzlements of businesses, each of these embezzlements were discovered by co-workers or by managers of the defendant. Um, in Angel's case, the, she made four electronic payments of mortgage payments to her lender, which was outside of the credit union. Um, her, her, her lender servicer was not a part of the credit union structure. And um, a co-worker or co-workers of hers discovered that uh, these payments um, had not been posted to her account. The um, uh, data, that the, the information that I saw was not really clear about how the employees detected this because instead of being directly in, invest, or, uh, interviewed first by law enforcement, they, as is normal, reported it to their managers. And it was then the managers who then conducted a full audit of um, the defendant's accounts and saw that all of this money was been posted um, and and not posted though to her account. So it was her co-workers who discovered that. Um, in Nicoletta's case, it was discovered late in the day that she had um, falsely reported um, that the ATM machines had been serviced in a way that in in, in a required and scheduled way. She said that they had been serviced, and in fact, they had not. And it was upon the discovery that what she had said was not true about this aspect of the ATM management, they then began to deep, uh, probe deeper and conduct more of an audit into the actual accounting records as it, as it related to the ATM uh, hopper reconciliations. So in each of these instances, the thefts were first discovered by people within the organization as opposed to an outside entity, including law enforcement. Each of the victim businesses then made reports to law enforcement after they'd conducted some of their own um, internal uh, uh, review. That's actually great to hear that because, you know, we at the ACFE really talk about how important having a hotline or how tips are the most common form of discovering fraud. And this, both of these are pure instances of tips doing exactly that. And I, I, I totally agree. Um, oftentimes, that is how fraud is detected. And having some sort of reporting mechanism up to and including a tip line, anonymous or not, is very helpful. I'm, I, I'm trying to think of how emotionally devastating it must have been and emotionally difficult it must have been to learn that a coworker of yours is doing this 
as far as I know, there was no anonymous reporting mechanism available at either of these institutions. So these people had to go to their managers and say, there's something wrong here. And mm-hmm. it's, it is very difficult to think about, you know, calling out a coworker or someone that you've worked with or for again for years. It's very difficult. So my hat's off to both of them. Do you think you have an idea of what the biggest motivator was for Angel and Nicoletta to commit these frauds or how they rationalized their actions? Because I don't, I didn't have any direct contact with them. I don't have, and, and I'm not a psychologist, but so I don't, I can't say specifically they had these financial pressures or this thing. It, to be candid, the largest single category of fraud, um, also, you know, financial crime that I've seen in my position here for the past nine years is embezzlements from a business usually by an employee, sometimes by an executive director. Um, But the motivation that I see, it's almost like two points of the fraud triangle because they wanted to and because they could. And not necessarily in that order. I think sometimes people see an opportunity and then all of a sudden they think about, boy, I would love some extra cash, or they'd say, boy, I'd, in, in, in internally and probably not even concretely, boy, I'd love some extra cash. You know what? I don't think this particular gap is bridged at all in the operational system. People want to, and they can, or they can, and that leads to they want to. And I honestly believe that is the mindset that drives the majority of people who commit organizational embezzlement. Um, I really believe that for each of them, the fact that they were able to do their little bit-by-bit transactions or thefts or frauds without detection, especially early in the game, that enabled them to tell, tell themselves in some kind of ineffable way, well, this must be okay, because if it weren't okay, I'd have been caught by now. And early on, they also became so habituated to these, again, bit-by-bit, day-by-day, week-by-week things, they, it, it became almost as normal as brushing their teeth or you know, um, sending the kids to school in the morning, all of these routine actions that we forget we've done, five minutes after we've done them. And I think that they were truly able to forget that they were stealing money. Earlier, we briefly touched on the point that there were clearly no separation of duties, which helped both of these criminals commit their their frauds. Other than that, what kind of preventive measures can be instituted to help deter frauds like these? One standard recommendation, especially for the management of employees in an organization, is to require employees to take their vacations and to perform desk audits in their absence while they're on vacation and to let all employees know that their conduct is being observed. There's um, one of the big, big 
mantras of um, the ACFE and I think any other organization that, you know, promotes risk management for businesses, promote the perception of detection. People behave differently when they know they're being watched. And one thing that I believe was true in both Angel's and uh, Nicoletta's situation, because they were such long-term trusted employees within their organizations, they became kind of invisible. They became part of the wallpaper. And their work and their work ethic and their work quality were largely taken for granted. And when you become invisible, you can become kind of dangerous because people will will stop watching and evaluating and analyzing that which you do. So, um, and, and a lot of embezzlers are very loath to take time off work because they may be keeping their double sets of, of, of books and they may be keeping track of their defalcations in a desk drawer um, or they've hidden their, their, you know, computer files and stuff like that, and things that a desk audit might catch. And so they're very reluctant to take time away from work because they can't control what's happening in their absence. So make them take their, their vacations um, and, and, and do a systematic desk audit when they're gone. Do you have any advice for fraud examiners that investigate these types of crimes? Because clearly you have done this for a long time, you've seen a lot of the same cases, and you're very experienced. What would you tell other fraud examiners to look for or how to approach cases like this? First and foremost, and back to the basics, is always very important when you're dealing with an embezzlement of a business in general, a bank case in particular, you've got to have the complete financial records of the victim business and of the suspect. And when I say complete financial records of the victim business, that would be something that you'd need to talk about with the bank and say, you know, identify what accounts were plundered, how were they done. I'm not saying it's necessary that you have to do the whole bank, but you have to have a pretty complete set of records, at least for those accounts that you think were plundered. And you have got to get the financial records of the suspect. And that can be challenging, especially if you're working on the case pre-charge. Um, it's, 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 can't, it is and it should be challenging to get an individual's financial information. You need to do it either by a, a search warrant, sometimes a subpoena instrument, but you have to lay a pretty found, sound factual basis before a judge will sign off on authorizing to get records of something that's very private. With financial records and in financial crime investigations and fraud investigations, a lot of times the more you look, the more you find. And what is initially reported to the investigator and or the CFE, sometimes they're the same person, um, a lot of times that's the start of the case, not the end point of the case. And that's a lot of, that's something that I think a lot of businesses don't understand. CFEs have to work often with other investigators and the business to say, we're, we may just be at the beginning. It's extremely important for organizational embezzlement cases that CFEs get all of the personnel records, including but not limited to attendance, payroll, employee performance reviews, and training documentation for the suspected fraudster. Because that can, again, especially in terms of attendance, 
you know, a theft occurred when the um, fraudster was at work and the theft did not occur when the fraudster was out of the office. A lot of times attendance records can be very helpful for that. Payroll records, how was the person paid, how much was she paid, direct deposit or by check, all of that minutia. Employee performance reviews, did they get a bad review, did they get a great review, did they get a non-review? you got to start developing a picture of the fraudster or the suspected fraudster, perhaps to determine, you know, this is what supports the allegations and this is what doesn't, but also to get a picture of the defendant that you're dealing with. It's always very important, I think especially for bank victims, to look at every transaction that is... uh, Within the suspected offense period, be it a check clearing, be it an electronic transfer, be it a cash-based transaction, you've got to look at everything and you've got to schedule everything out because a lot of times these cases are more circumstantial because there are no eyewitnesses to what the person did. And finally, it's very important to get a good understanding of the human and physical environment of the suspect again what is their relationship to their coworkers, to their managers, to their subordinates? What is the general office culture? Is it informal? Is it strict? Um, is it haphazard? Also get a, f- a feel, again, for the physical environment. Do people work in closed-door offices, cubicles, open space plans, um, you know, easy access in and out of the physical area? Um, you want to do a good walkthrough of the suspect's space and all of the areas that the suspect had access to. Because oftentimes the the records that demonstrate the actual fraudulent transfers only tell a portion of the story, the what and the how much. Whereas knowledge of the human and the physical environments can tell you or get you far towards telling you the how and sometimes the why. I think all of that is great advice. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was a pleasure getting to to speak to you over the phone. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to our listeners. You can find all of our podcasts at acfe.com slash podcast and in the iTunes store. This has been Emily Primo signing off.